Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Howdy and welcome back to Radio KBPV, the podcast for Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, our community museum in Pinch Creek, Alberta. This is Ranger Gore talking to you from the village. And it's March 10th, 2021. Uh, today we're going to do a story about the Pincher Creek Memorial Hospital. Just before I get into this, I'd just like to know that you can read some of the, the stories that I'm going to start doing on podcasts on our own archive on kootenaybrown.ca and you will see the buttons on the home pages or you can go over to the um, archives button and scroll down there to the pull down menu you'll see buttons for stories and buttons for images so uh, most of these stories do have images associated with it and we do have other images that we're building an online archive for so while we haven't been doing this podcast regularly we have been busy at least getting to that and that of course will be helpful in being able to make this podcast a little more regular as I get more of Farley's and my own stories up there on the uh, on the uh, on the story archive, I can just uh, hit the button and start reading. So that's what I'm going to do right now. So uh, hope you enjoy the story of Pincher Creek's very first full facility hospital, a Frontier Medical Heritage. Chronicles of Pincher Creek's Memorial Hospital. Written by Farley Worth, curator of the Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, copyright Pincher Creek and District Historical Society. One of Pincher Creek's firsts was the old Memorial Hospital, an impressive structure that housed the settlement's original formal hospital. Now, although the arrival of doctors, midwives, and some medical services dated as early as the 1880s, most of these endeavors were handled out of people's homes or cramped offices set up by the doctors themselves. The Memorial Hospital, established around 1902, answered an increasing demand for full hospital services. Nearly 25 years had passed of settlement, geographically far removed from any equivalent medical care. Emergency trips to Fort McLeod or Lethbridge, the sites of already established hospitals, were laborious at best, and in most cases, downright dangerous given the lengths of the journeys and the lack of medical technology of the pioneer era. It was at least a three-day trek by wagon, 
uh, by train, often all day. Locals often had to avail themselves upon the generosity of others for medical accommodations. Mrs. Amy Saunders, who was actually a black woman uh, from the American South, who had settled in Pincher Creek on Main Street uh, as the governess for the, the children of Colonel McLeod. She adeptly provided this service in her log dwelling. Making house calls though was not the most efficient way to use a doctor's time and the need for around-the-clock qualified nursing care was apparent. A hospital right in Pincher Creek to offer doctor and nursing care, surgeries, quarantines, deliveries, emergency care and access to the latest in medicines was badly needed. To answer that call, the Memorial Hospital was established. This point was brought home in 1899 after the, uh, the impact of the South African War when veterans from Pincher Creek came home in 1902 from battlefields that were half a world away. Far removed as those may have been, close to 30 district men had enlisted in the conflict and others that came from the Fort McLeod area as well. Three had not come home. Fred Morden, Robert Kerr, and Ovide Smith. Morden and Kerr were killed in action, and Ovide Smith died of uh, dysentery and health conditions while in South Africa. While capitalizing on the sense of immense loss coupled with the frontier community spirit for which Pincher Creek had been famous, and the area's need for a functional hospital, Local pioneers seized the opportunity and organized a campaign to build their much-needed medical facility. This new hospital was located in the northeastern corner of town, north of the creek, and just below the North Hill at a point east of what it was popularly known as the Mill Hill. Ironically, uh, just at the bottom of the hill as you start to rise to toward uh, going over to the current hospital site. This was along the east side of the 1100 block of John Avenue, which then was below the industrial workings of the Pincher Creek Electrical Company. It was within reasonable walking or horse and buggy sleigh distance of most points in the settlement south side, and that was an important consideration before cars came along. That accessibility was enhanced by the 1898 wooden traffic bridge and the two sub subsequently constructed footbridges spanning the creek immediately upstream of the hospital and much further west near Morden's Grove. The hospital's physical structure was both functional and eye-catching. The original part was a two-story rectangular building whose main entrance faced to the west. Eventually, an enclosed porch protected the public access from those prevalent westerly winds, and a wraparound second-floor Widow's Walk veranda was attached sometime prior to December 1913 to the north and east sides with an exterior staircase leading down to the ground level at the building's southwest corner. Traditional vertical windows could be seen on both, si both, both sides, pardon me, with the need for storm windows being discussed by the hospital board in October 1914. 
An addition that was also two stories in height was added onto the east or the rear portion of the structure. It is believed that this work took place between 1907, when the issue of requiring a larger facility was first raid, raised, and in around 1915, when a photo was taken depicting the larger facility. Sometimes our records uh, are missing on these sorts of things, but we do find things in newspapers and other documents that allow us to try to narrow in these uh, windows, for the lack of a better pun. Once completed, the building was highly visible on the Pioneer Pincher Creek landscape for close to a generation. Although the specifics in regards to the physical arrangement for the hospital's interior have been lost to history, it is understood that there were a number of common wards and private rooms on the first and second floors. A surgery suite, primitive as though it may have been given the frontier understanding of medicine, was located on the lower level where access was the easiest. A dispensary and doctor's office was situated nearby. Dormitory-style staff accommodations, mostly for the nurses, would have been located upstairs. The need for the installation of a 14 by 14 foot annex addition with a main level water closet, that means bathroom folks, and an upstairs ward was discussed by the hospital board at their September 17, 1907 meeting. Fundraising campaigns and events were an administrative mainstay throughout the Memorial Hospital's history. It was only through these efforts that the hospital was able to remain financially afloat and keep its doors open to the public. Patients had to pay the bulk of their own medical costs and delinquent costs were a hospital board issue of concern as early as August 1907. Hospital Secretary W.A. Ross, who worked extensively as a bookkeeper, noted, however, some six years later that no patient was ever turned away due to lack of funds. But let's be straight, folks. This is at least a good half century before universal health care came along in Canada and Alberta. The hospital board in 1913 launched a whirlwind campaign as it was stated in the uh, Pincher Creek Echo, designed to eliminate the accumulated deficits incurred during the previous seven or eight years and to pay for badly needed building and grounds improvements. The autumn campaign, pegged at $2,500, received much appreciated bo uh, boost by Lord Strathcona, who is actually... Uh, Donald Smith, who if you know the history of the CP Rail, was the man who drove, drove the last spike. And of course, uh, Lord Strathcona was also the, the namesake for uh, the Lord Strathcona's horse, who many Pincher Creek uh, volunteers had ridden for during the South African War. But uh, to get back to our story, Strathcona made an early pledge of $1,000. This was received on the 13th anniversary of the 1900 battle at Honing Spirit in South Africa. Under the auspices of manager H.W. Rudd of the Pincher Creek uh, Hudson's Bay Company outlet, the soon-to-be-departed department store made an unspecified donation 
plus 5% of all sales made on Saturday, October 18th and 1913. And of course, shortly after that, the Hudson's Bay Company was destroyed by fire and never reopened, at least in Pincher Creek. Donations to the hospital often were in, made in goods and services rather than cash. This barter-type system was gratefully accepted. The autumn of 1907, for instance, saw much-needed perishables come in, and vegetables were brought in by Mrs. Mary McLeod, uh, the wife of Colonel McLeod, of course, Vegetables and Buns by Mrs. Mickey Reardon. A Pair of Chickens by Mrs. Matilda Wilson. Grapes by John Redpath. Cream from Mrs. Catherine Heron. Vegetables, Eggs, and Preserves by Mrs. Catherine Scott. And Mrs. Lavasseur brought a cake. Mrs. Faithorn brought in a set of books which was much appreciated reading material for those shut in as convalescents. By the third quarter of 1914, the hospital budget showed that revenues, which totaled $2,081.73, exceeded expenditures by over $150. The concept of implementing a hospital tax based upon property holdings, similar to what was placed in Manitoba, was discussed by the hospital board. Local officials through the government of Alberta should be lobbied for a similar system within this province, it was said by the board. Rural localities did chip in regularly with fundraising events in support of the hospital. The Fishburn community hosted a well-organized, highly patronized dance at its community hall, which was the local schoolhouse constructed in 1894, which is now, of course, sitting in Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. And that function occurred on the evening of Friday, June 24, 1910. And they raised funds totaling $49.50. With only $16 going towards expenses. And that's, of course, payment for the band, hall rental, and printing uh, circulars. But the rest of those profits went directly to the Memorial Hospital. Music was supplied by Mr. Darrett on the violin and Mr. Mrs. A.L. Saunders accompanying on the piano. Mr. H. McGlenning served as the event's secretary-treasurer. Closer to town, the final week of April 1916 saw a hospital ball being hosted as a memorial fundraiser, although attendance was down from previous years due to Easter being late that time around, and most people being out in the fields, I would imagine. But the effort raised close to $75 profit, and a large crowd showed up early the following February for a well-orchestrated concert that raised an impressive $128. Entertaining musical contributions came from local musicians such as Charlie Taysom, Laura Freebairn, Mac McCardo, and Mabel Jackson. The Masquerade Ball, hosted in February 19, raised another $142.65. One of the last fundraising efforts of the memorial was its spring and summer 1919 hospital drive. Similar to that of a subscription drive, it went both after both town and rural donations. Although more than $300 was raised, 
The hospital was facing serious financial issues, perhaps a victim of the post-World War I economic recession. Local merchants were owed nearly $1,000 in outstanding invoices, and a further debt of $600 was owed to the Union Bank. This was in terms of a note for which the hospital board of directors were personally responsible. An old account of $100 was due to the firm of Chowdler and Fisher of Winnipeg and was outstanding. Back wages for the staff accumulated a further $300, and the total indebtedness of the Memorial Hospital came to over $2,000. Donations the following spring, primarily coming from town and rural businesses and citizens, came to within a few cents of $300. Now, the local community was enthusiastic, but financial times during the First World War were tough and the uh, didn't look good for the Memorial Hospital. Now, as far as staffing, throughout its history, the Memorial Hospital was served by a dedicated team of board members, volunteers, and staff who worked hard to offer the best pioneer medical services possible and in keeping the facility financially afloat. When the decision was made to launch the idea of the hospital, a large committee whose members represented the various districts around Pincher area was formed to collect funds for the effort. And that committee launched a valiant effort to raise money following the end of the Great War. That included ranchers Thomas Hammond and Robert Lang, businessman R.O. Allison and W.R. Laidlaw, and community members J.J. Cameron and C.G. Thomas. Three local fellows, the Canon uh, Havelock Smith of the Anglican Church, Constable J. Gould of the Northwest Mounted Police, and the Reverend H.R. Grant of the Presbyterian Church, formed the building committee. The Board of Directors also reflected dedicated community people. Some of those serving in the autumn of 1907 included businessman E.J. Mitchell, and oh, sorry, e, included businessman E.J. Mitchell, Mitchell and Lynch, an ex-Mountie turned rancher, Alfred Hardwick Lynch Staunton, and veterinarian Dr. David Warnock. Seven years later, the board president was Thomas Morden. Other board members that, that year included businessman S.A. Fraser, William McCarricker, and J.E. Upton, rather, as well as community members G.E. Saville and the Reverend Gretton. The town secretary treasurer, George D. Plunkett, adeptly served as the board secretary. He was succeeded by W.A. Ross, who served in 1913 and 14, resigning to make way for the new manager. The Ladies Hospital Auxiliary assisted with its overall operations, including fundraising, volunteer recruitment, and visiting with patients. Mrs. A.N. Mowat was its 1910 president, Mrs. F. Hinton is vice president, Mrs. A.C. Camus is secretary treasurer, 
And I'm sorry I don't have the first names of these ladies. That's just kind of a common thing we have in those days. But we do know that its corresponding secretary was the unsinkable Miss Mary Bull, local teacher. Committee members that year included Mrs. William Maxwell and Mrs. Margaret Jackson, who looked after sewing and purchasing, and Miss Bull accompanied by Mrs. Catherine Scott, who looked after supplies, October 1914. He was chosen by the board over rival applicants S. Watson, Thomas Hoare, and Harvey Bosenberry. The manager was responsible for raising subscriptions and attend to the general financing of the institution. His monthly salary was set at $65 plus room and board, and previously $400 had been spent annually for the secretary to do the same work. The medical staff at the Memorial Hospital served as the frontline workers. Dealing with a variety of emergencies, injuries, illnesses that were often contagious, and remember this is the year era of the 19 and 1920 pandemic, and of course childbirthing. Dr. J.J. Gillespie was one of the hard-working doctors to serve there. His efforts were supplemented by such nurses as Natalia Duval Mitchell, or Michelle, not exactly certain, registered nurse, who served as the hospital's matron. Um, she passed away in 1920. Rose's husband served as one of the very capable nurses and business managers for three years during the First World War. She married Bruce Parker in 1921. Memorial Hospital employees enumerated in 1910 included Maud Edgar, who worked as a nurse. Her wages that year came to $480. She was born in March of 1882. Louise Gibb also worked as a nurse that year, pulling in the same wage. Gibb was born in April 1881 in England, immigrated to Canada at the age of 24. Mary Bell, who was born in the Canadian Prairies in June 1883, also nursed and earned the same wages. The hospital's cook that year was Sarah Simpson. Her annual wages came to $360. Born in England in May 1881, she immigrated to Canada in 1902. Lillian Lance, whose job title was that of domestic, meant that she helped with housekeeping, laundry, and cleaning duties. Her 1910 wages came to $300. The youngest of the crew, she was born in January of 1891. And this wraps up our story as the Memorial Hospital permanently closed in the early 1920s. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.